Good morning and welcome to AC23. I'm your host, Pam Bordelon, and joining me this morning is the one and only Maxine Crump. And she's here to talk about dialogue on race, Louisiana. Welcome, Maxine. I'm happy to be here, Pam. We are so happy to have you. So I've I've known you for a long time, longer than either one of us are going to confess to this morning. <laughs> so I know a little bit about your history, but for those of our listeners who don't, tell me a little bit about Maxine and kind of how you have evolved into this program. So how did you get started in life here? Yeah, so I grew up on a bayou okay. in Maringouin. Louisiana, and Maringouin is 25 miles west of Baton Rouge, and um, part of my history involves the fact that my parents also grew up on the bayou, and so did their parents. Okay. And of course, there is a connection to slavery, mm-hmm. and one of the connections is nationally known, and that is part of my family are descendants from those who were enslaved by the Jesuits who owned Georgetown and okay. were sold to Louisiana to uh, save Georgetown from bankruptcy. Oh, wow. And so I'm I'm now also the legacy of Georgetown because they call us legacy. They give us legacy status. Okay. So that's part of, of my history. And then... Um, of course, we we I grew up during Jim Crow, mm-hmm. um, which that is rare, rarely how anyone describes themselves as growing up during Jim Crow because they don't think of it that way. Yeah. But I grew up during Jim Crow, and at the end of Jim Crow was the year I went to college, and LSU was desegregated at the time. The first year of desegregation, and I went to LSU, was the first uh, woman to black woman to live in women's housing at LSU, and um, had a, a history of working at the chemical plants along the bayou because that was also part of being Louisiana when the chemical plants started coming in. Uh, my father and his cousin mm-hmm. were two of the people who would go to the chemical plants and say, if you're going to exist here, you need to hire people from this area, from Bill mm-hmm. Parish. So all of my brothers and sisters worked at the chemical plants along the okay. river until I was hired in radio at WXOK uh, uh, part-time. And then I was hired again well, I was the first woman DJ okay. in Baton Rouge. I asked them, what does a woman DJ sound like? And they said, they don't you? sound like a man. <laughs> they sound like you. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> and then the next, um, I was hired by WFMF um, as the first black female DJ over there. And then Channel 9 hired me like nine months later, I think, okay. um, to uh, be the first black female television reporter. In Baton Rouge. Okay. Yeah. And how long were you at Channel 9? 15 years. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was a good growing opportunity in many, many ways. Yeah. I I regret nothing about having worked there. It was wonderful. What was it like to be the first on so many levels of that? I mean, did did once you do it, is it like, okay, I've broken this barrier, I can do it again somewhere else? No, it wasn't like that at all. It was like that's what was happening because... Uh, And that's the point of having grown up in Jim Crow and then being right at the precipice of the change. Um, If you had this credential and that credential, they were looking for somebody with those credentials. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for being the first. They were looking for the first. And uh, that's how I ended up in those positions because when Channel 9 hired me, they said they didn't know anyone from this area who had television training. And so... Um, Bob Rene, who was the photographer at Channel 9, black mm-hmm. photographer, he said, well, there is a person in radio 
And they said, well, okay, that'll work. What does she look like? Because she's going to be on television. And uh, so they brought me in for an interview. And I didn't want the job because I loved radio. Yeah. And I still do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I talked with Bob and Ed Bugs, who was at Channel 2 at the time. And I said, "Um, that sounds like hard work. And they said, it's hard. Yeah. But you're going to like it. Mm -hmm. And so I took the job. And it was hard. And I did like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what was... What what do you how do you think you were able to change the public's perception in that role? Do you think you were able to chip away at some stuff? Yes, and they changed me too because uh, at Channel Nine I raised certain questions that they 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 hadn't raised before. One of the powerful things about being a television reporter is that your job is to ask questions. Yeah, and. I was always asking questions anyway. That was kind of normal for me. Mm-hmm. So I used it not only in my reporting, but also inside yeah. the business. And so I, I asked a lot of questions. And as they processed through those questions, they that helped them make certain changes. Mm-hmm. I thought some of the changes were a little slow because they kind of doubted me because I did not have a uh, journalism or broadcast uh, education mm-hmm. background. Okay. So they weren't sure about listening to me, but... Eventually, there would be someone who would say, but I don't know, let's think about what she said. Uh, one example was uh, they, uh, all television stations and all re- uh, operations like to think of themselves as fair, yeah. re- re- giving fair reports. And there was uh, an example of um, the uh, parish um, supplying buses for parochial schools. Yeah. And then the NAACP said that, was not okay that the parish should, the East Baton Rouge Parish School should supply buses for parochial schools because they were their own yeah. uh, entity. And um, so the report, the me- morning meeting in the report, they decided that uh, there would be a reporter who would go out and show a little boy in his parochial uniform waiting for the bus and saying, uh, the NWC doesn't want this little boy to ride the bus. Yeah. <laughs> I said, <laughs> uh, well, I know. Uh, that uh, what we would like is a balanced story or a fair story. Mm-hmm. And that seems uh, out of balance to fairness. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, uh, well, what do, you, what do you suggest? I said, well, if you're going to, to put a, a, a large black man against a little boy, you know, I'm wondering what's the image here to the public. Yeah. And uh, they, they took my word for it and they did a different story mm-hmm. that um, – did not have the little boy waiting for the bus in there to show it like this big man who's going yeah. after this little boy. Yeah. Uh, that lopsided story got changed. I don't remember exactly how it changed, but it was no longer lopsided. Yeah. Well, you know, coming from a place where there were no parochial schools, uh, that kind of blew my mind as I'm a taxpayer and why are my taxpayer dollars paying to bus children to a private school? Yes, and that was the complaint. And that's the story. That's, that's the story. The story. It exactly. has nothing to do with black, white, pink, or indifferent. It's like, why are my tax dollars doing this? Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I agree with you on that one. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, kind of how did you, you, you left television? So, what did you do after you left TV? What, Oh, I did lots of things. I went in TV again mm-hmm. uh, with uh, BET. Okay. For a year, I worked for BET, and then they ended their news operation. Okay. So um, 
and for those who don't know, BET is Black Entertainment Television. I guess everybody knows it now. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to Ascension Parish because they um, they want to uh, use their cable mm-hmm. uh, channel for an area that covered local color. And okay. if you know uh, Ascension Parish, there's a lot of local color there. There is. And they have one big event coming up soon, the... Um, Jambalaya Festival. Mm-hmm. In the we're in Jambalaya Festival season now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's festival season. Period. It's festival season. Period. And so that's one of their <laughs> cultural things. And what is so fascinating is that I was fascinated with the story and the background and the history of the Jambalaya Festival and how that those who came from an Acadiana was so poor. You know, they they uh, this this jambalaya was like a, a dish that they could make and take all day to cook and in the evening they had their dinner mm-hmm. and everything went in that pot and i just thought that was such a cultural uh treasure yeah. and you just and brought what you had and everybody threw it in the pot together exactly <laughs> and that uh that festival celebrates that and they continue to cook on wood yeah uh, there's uh, nowhere else where they cook jambalaya on wood yeah there's except no, there's there. not a propane tank to be had that's right <laughs> <laughs> i don't think mine would get cooked <laughs> exactly so there are many other cultural things they have in the whole parish and so local yeah. color covering local color was great for me because i love local color and I, they related to me right away for two reasons not just because i was with channel nine before mm-hmm. that was important to them as well but because i took the time with them because mm-hmm. it's a whole different culture oh it is if we went to cover a story down there they they said, wait, didn't I go to school with your sister? They would ask the photographer who was mm-hmm. from there. Yeah. And they the converse, the interview didn't start until that was settled. Oh, yeah. And I learned to be patient with that. But it was, it's not hard for me because I'm from Maringouin, the bayou, where that sort of thing happened. That's it. So they were immediately. That connection. Their connection was immediately made. Yeah. That's, those are the things that make life rich. That's Very your roux. That's Very your roux. Yeah, that's my roux. And that's Louisiana. That that's, is. That's the, that's the wonderful parts of Louisiana, yeah. that cultural Those connection stuff that holds us together. Holds us together. So um, kind of how did Dialogues, on, how, did the, how did that come to be? Kind of what was the impetus for that? Well, as you heard me say, uh, there, were, there was a lot of understanding around race that Channel 9 didn't have. Mm-hmm. I don't think... They thought that's what I would be bringing with me. I think they thought that uh, they would get to showcase that they had hired a black reporter. Yeah. And they didn't think about what I could bring otherwise other yeah. than how it makes them look. And so I said, well, if we care about how the station looks, this is what I suggest. And if you care about um, um, the experience that I bring... I don't come as a tape recorder. I come as a person. So I have a perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a, a producer there who really got that. And so he started using a lot of my uh, uh, coverage in areas that had to do with race. And um, because of that challenging understanding of race, I realized that a lot of people... Um, oh, and it was a second thing. Uh, at the time when I got there, they were not covering uh, Southern University sports in the same way they were covering LSU LSU, and they were constantly getting phone calls and letters about that and so um, they started sending a photographer and eventually they started sending a reporter Mm -hmm. so that was a response because of conversations that we had inside the newsroom where when I answered the perspective and I never challenged them by saying 
you're doing it wrong. I yeah, raise just, questions. Yeah. And they is could there, see it. Yeah. Is there a reason we don't do, we do this for LSU. Is there a reason we don't do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the fans of Southern are strong. They fill that stadium too. Mm-hmm. And there are many people who are white have, are going to Southern as well. So this is a community mm-hmm. where both these universities are big yeah. in this state, in this city. And so that, we need to look like we understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how they would get it. I always spoke to them from their perspective, not mine. Yeah. Because if I give my perspective, anyone can argue with my personal perspective, sure. but it's hard to argue against themselves. Yeah. So I always made it about understanding it from their perspective. And uh, so that was uh, the sort of thing. So knowing that people would come to me a lot about race, and so I finally realized people wanted to talk about race, and two... They liked television, so I put the two things together, and I designed it around the way television works. Um, so this was just me thinking that I could do this, and I had uh, been asked to join the YWCA Board of Directors, and as a part of being, uh, their mission is the elimination of racism. racism. Mm-hmm. And so as a part of it, I went to a racial justice training and found out that I was not quite responding to race as it had been brought forth during the civil rights movement. And that is as an as a systemic operation that is empowered by institutions to operate a certain way. And and that was the Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. When that era ended, then those kinds of operations were illegal. But there had never been anything done to say institutions now you can no longer have a preference for whiteness in your in how you operate. You can no longer leave barriers in place that limit other people. Yeah. And so that was not clear. And so a lot of the operation continued unconsciously, yeah. unintentionally, indirect. But this is the way we've always done it, which is just institution, period. That's right. It is it, it, institutions operate often like that. Yeah. You know, once they say once they once you put down a steel pollen, the vision stops and everything <laughs> becomes status quo <laughs> unless you prepare to make sure you don't yeah. do that. Yeah. And so, it, you know, if it status quo, um, you may be looking at the bottom line and that's working out fine. But there are other things that you're affecting that isn't it's not no. quite visible. Yeah. So so racism has become very normal. It's mm-hmm. not something that. When people see episodes like George Floyd killing, they think, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. But the, the everyday ways that has been left in place those, are not as visible. Those little subtle. Subtle. And, under, yeah, that you and don't, seeming you're not normal. even aware, mm-hmm. aware of. One of the most normal things that is racist in Baton Rouge and in Louisiana and in the country that many people think of as normal, and that is the areas that are bridged over. During the 50s, mm-hmm. the areas that were bridged over, in order to get matching funds from the federal government, you had to say on your application for matching funds to bring the interstate through your area why that area was bridged over. And in most applications, including Louisiana's, they would say this is an undesir- undesirable area. And I recently spoke with uh, some people who lived in South Baton Rouge at the time who were affluent. And that that South Baton Rouge, the area that was bridged over, was an affluent area. But on the application, it said undesirable. Well, the only thing that can align with that was that's where people who were black live. Now, 
most people who are not from Baton Rouge and most people who've been born much after the 60s just say this is a kind of a bad area. But it wasn't until it was bridged over. So that makes it a racist structure, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that anyone today is thinking about it that way. But it has continued to disenfranchise that area. That's what makes it racist. It's a barrier to their access, to their success. And that's the racism that Dialogue on Race is designed to talk about. The things that people don't see, so they will stop thinking, well, what's wrong with those people? Why are they complaining? What do they want now? They have opportunities. We've got civil rights law. we got affirmative action. uh, We have the housing uh, law. Mm -hmm. And we have the Voting Rights Act. What do they want now? Well, that's because so much of the way America operated uh, before just was America. It was great. It was the richest, most powerful nation on the planet. Part of what made America the richest nation was the uh, taking of the land from those who were natively here and from enslaving millions of Africans to build an economy. The economy, this was a, this was a colony. Yeah. You know, just a group of colonists. And then after 1776, when it became a nation, you had to build an economy. And the way they chose to build it was to remove natives from the land, uh, turn it into an agricultural uh, area, and bring in enslaved people to grow the cotton. And in 60 years, this became the second richest, most powerful nation behind Great Britain through enslavement. So, so, it's racism has always been a part of this nation, but the story is told with all of that in it, except for some of the details. Yeah, and so it, it makes it look this was a great country. Look how we built ourselves, and that is all true. Mm-hmm. But tell the whole story. Yeah. So I thought the whole story needed to be told because I think it never be ashamed to be passed. Yeah, and the part you don't like, use it as fertilizer for the future. That's it. So I just think that we need to stop being embarrassed and saying don't talk about it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And so I wanted to build a a, a way of talking that would allow people of all walks of life to come together and have this conversation in a way that they could be open and honest Mm -hmm. and say those things that help them unpack the flawed part of the narrative and really understand what they're dealing with and not be pointing fingers at each other. Because I think sometimes people want to have that conversation, but they don't know how to start it Mm -hmm. or they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing Mm -hmm. and they don't want to hurt their friend's feelings. Exactly. So... This gives them a way to do that. That's right. Because those are reasonable things. Yeah. Not wanting to hurt anyone's feelings. Yeah. Not wanting to, to say the wrong thing. Yeah. All of those things are reasonable. Yeah. But if we protect all of that, yeah. we're not going to have a way of talking yeah. about an issue in the country that really needs to be eliminated. Yeah. And we need to stop saying things like, well, that's too bad. It's never going to be eliminated because you're never going to change people's minds and hearts. Well, well, that's not the that's the wrong approach. Yeah. To try to change people's minds and hearts. Staying silent. No, you but will s- never change anything if you keep your mouth shut. Absolutely. Staying silent is a big problem on 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 anything that's that's important to the health of, of the society. Yeah. And the health of the society does depend on this conversation being had. Because sometimes um, there are things that's just come into light that no one knew was a problem, and that is the number of African-American women that are dying in childbirth. It's at, a, it's at an yeah. astounding rate uh, in comparison to women who are white. And 
part of the narrative in the past was that black people were a different species. That's why we have the race hierarchy. Well, that's not true. No. Share, share blood and blood banks and things like that. So if, if black women are dying disproportionately high, we have to look at the race component, not the, not the biological component. Because no. there's not a biological difference in that way. But there are environmental and operational ways that have affected the health. And you have to look at racism to understand things like that. Yeah. And I can't remember who said it. I'm horrible about that. But the the people that do not study history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. And you have to look. You have to look. And you have to study it. And you have to. You can't say, oh, that's. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. You, you have to do that. Yes. And, and now, more than ever, we need to do that. Yes. And I like to say to people who said they don't want to talk about it, I like to say, I understand that. And and um, what do you do? You have something you'd prefer to talk about? What do you, what would you like us to do about the situation without talking about it? Yeah. Do you think the situation's a problem? And they say, Well, yes, I think it's a problem. Well, how do we fix it if we don't talk about it? Who would you like to talk about it, but not you? Yeah. See, I always go to where they're standing, not yeah. where I want them to stand, because yeah. I, I shouldn't have a want for them. Yeah. Okay. So, when is your next uh, dialogue on race happening? May. 24th, I believe. I should have looked that up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it in the, we'll is, put it I out think there. June, June 5th. June 5th? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, but the, the way to find out is to go to dora.la. Okay. That's the website, dora.la. Okay. And it'll take you to all of the listings and the uh, registration site. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Well, Maxine, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I greatly appreciate it. It was fun. It was fun. It's uh, been a pleasure being with you. All of you who are out there listening, I hope you will uh, go to dor.la, sign up for the next Dialogues on Race. I hope I'll see you there. And be sure to uh, join us on May the 25th for our annual meeting at at 530 here at the Cary Suarez Community Arts Center. And be sure and check out the Derek Gordon and Rodolfo Ramirez collection exhibit in the Shell Gallery. We sold a ton of paintings, uh, artworks at our uh, reception last week, and so much so that we're having to put up new stuff. So if, even if you've been, come back and check it out because there's new things on the wall. And we'll see you next Sunday right here on AC23.